Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This week's episode of The Educated Hunter is brought to you by nobody. Enjoy it. It's free. Cheers. Today's episode is a catch-up with Rachel Artella, who is an old friend of mine I met when I first came over to Canada. She's a cowgirl, a professional guide, a writer, a personality within the outdoor industry. She's got a huge following on social media. She writes for a number of different hunting magazines. She is an affiliate with Sitka Clothing. Um, she is involved in a whole bunch of different stuff, so I'll, I'll fail if I try to list them all off here. The chat itself is interesting. We did it in Reno the other day in the Sitka booth, so there's a bit of background noise, but not too bad. A few announcements that couldn't be avoided, but again, once you uh, get into the swing of things, hopefully you will hardly even notice. Without further ado, here is Rachel Artilla. I can hardly hear him. Oh, All can I can see is like his mouth. I'm just watching him. You need to get out of here. You're just cramping our style. Curran, <laughs> Curran, go buy some optics. Do you know what the best thing you should do to this morning? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rather than cramping our style, go spend 10 grand on optics. That'll make you feel better. There's nothing better for a hangover than spending 10 grand on optics. We're away. Yep. This is all good content. See you later, mate. Oh, Don't buy anything with our credit card. <laughs> you tr- that's a lot of trust as he walks away with your credit card. Yeah, no kidding. How are you? I'm well on yourself. Good. Yes? I think I might still be carrying over a little bit of momentum from last night, to be fair. But other than that, I'm... When in Rome. I mean, it wouldn't be fair not to. <coughs> well, we're in Reno, which is this bugger all has to do here, to be honest. <laughs> Wow, I think it's like a big emotional roller coaster of like remembering where we were ten years and like at Rumbolians and like I was riding the vibe last night and I was like you know I better I better punk out or I will be riding the momentum tomorrow and Matt's gonna be like Rachel what yeah, are you on that's, that's probably fair I'd feel more comfortable if you had <laughs> because <laughs> you wouldn't be like dog shit <laughs> me and Curran looked at each other last night it was about four o'clock in the morning and we were talking to some guy arguing about like literally nothing like. Mm. Looked at each other and like, we shouldn't be here anymore, we need to leave. <laughs> and to be fair, I've never shut down Rum Bullions in my life and we got ushered out. Uh, I beg to differ, actually, that first year. I've shut it down? We we all shut it down. We were getting escorted out, actually, uh, 10 okay. years ago. So I feel like if you're not doing it 10 years later, then we're either getting really old or we're getting <laughs> mature. But obviously neither of those if you are shutting it down still. So. Well, the difference was no one joined us. Like me and Karim were out and we like, thought everyone was going to come along and then just we were just on our own the whole time. But anyway, we don't need to go that, go that deep. Down that memory lane. It was lane. just us and a couple of crazy South Africans that punched out the <clears> night. But we don't need to go into that. Thanks for joining me. It's um, Where are we? We're in Reno. We're at the SCI convention and we are tucked in the corner of the Sika booth. Yes, we are. What do you do here? Um... Basically, with the Sika booth here, I'm down here helping. Um, I've been very honored to come on as one of their big game ambassadors. So <laughs> I have to try and, you know, formulate what it is I want in gear and being able to articulate that to the designers and uh, 
it's been a wild and awesome ride. Awesome. I, I remember How long have you been I, with Sitka? <sighs> I took a little bit of a hiatus um, for two or three years between 2015 and 2016. Um, but I think I've been rocking the gear for the last eight years or so. Nice. Yeah. Since kind of we were all up at Scoop Lake when we first started out. So it's been really cool to be a part of how it's evolved to see where the market is right now and how how they're meeting it as a company. And I know Sika itself in Bozeman has grown exponentially in the last two years. Uh, there's been a lot of changeovers. There's been a lot of great ideas coming in. And getting to be a part of that ride is... It's, it's kind of made it. I remember when I first started walking around this show and your eyes are so big and googly-eyed and you're like, wow, there's so much to see here. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to be a part of that moving momentum, it's it's pretty sweet. That's cool. Yeah. Because they, they are innovating a lot. The, <coughs> the, the market of um, sort of that high-end mountain gear, is that how you describe it? How do you mountain describe hunting, it? Mountain lifestyle? I don't know. There's a very organic way of coming at it these days. It um, I know when we first started, I mean, half the people were still wearing jeans and Wranglers, and I know I was guilty of freezing my tits off. So, <laughs> as it's evolved, <laughs> I remember looking at, like, the first Optifay when it came into camp after Mothman and going, who in their right mind is going to wear that? Yeah. And then as you see it blend in, it's it's kind of neat to see how the gear has evolved. Like anything, you know, you used to just get a rifle and it had a 3 by 9 scope. Great. Well, now you have people that are pushing the limits and they want a scope that they can tack out to 1,000 plus yards comfortably. So it's the same in the gear. People want to be outside longer, I feel, and they want to be able to actually enjoy, you know, and, and extend their hunting trip. And I find, like, people nowadays, like, we're, we're tough, but we're not, like, not Jack O'Connor tough. tough, like no, sucking no, no. water out of a straw through the rocks tough anymore. And, you know, like I think we've been able to take what technology advancements we've had, especially with the Merino market and putting that into our base layers and making that a wholesale commercial as far as, you know, bringing in alternate to down yeah. and having Primaloft and, and kind of packaging that in an outfit that is functional, you know, for not just the hunting world, but, you know, across the genres. Yeah. And it's like me and Kerm are in the booth yesterday and we we found the little bow holder that slips over the top of your bow and you can slow it over your back mm-hmm. like that's a game changer it makes life so much easier and there's so many of those little um high-end innovations that mm-hmm. they do it makes hunting easier makes it more comfortable makes it more streamlined it just makes sense so exactly and you know you and i both know as guides if we're outside and comfortable and warm and enjoying our time you know, it's great. It takes that one bit of pressure off. And the hardest part is if you have a client that didn't dress right or they don't have the right gear, then, you know, they, I think that's kind of the neat thing about a guide is you can be able to tell them, hey, look, like I've worn this. This works for me. These are the little gimmicky accessories that really work for my personal hunting. This is how it's going to work for you. And I think that's been one of the other cool parts is how everything's evolved as the hunters that are jumping on board and going, oh, this isn't just an expensive set of hunting gear. Like I've had it for four years and seeing that it's, (laughs) I think it's a good thing. How long do, do you reckon we've got before we see the last Canadian guy climbing, climbing a mountain in a pair of jeans and a jean jacket? I can't. <laughs> to be fair, you're almost wearing it today. <laughs> denim, that's Dan denim, here. denim. That's double, that's double D. That's double D right now. All he needs a jacket and you'll hit the three. That's awesome. You know what? I have a Wrangler sheepskin jacket that I found at the tax store up in Fort St. John. I snapped that thing up so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what. Uh, you know, I hope we don't, honestly. Because, I mean, I still remember following John DeBreeze up a mountain wearing a pair of jeans. Like, I know. And, it, and cotton undergarments. Yeah. Like, how like, I can't even imagine, like, the discomfort. You, you're As soon as it rains, you're, like, oh, you're not miserable. only you're cold, but, like, hashtag chafe me. Like, I, 
Okay, like, it's just like torture. And it's almost like they enjoy it. It like, is. It's, it's like it makes them more manly. But I honestly can't point any fingers. I On trail day, you still can't beat a pair of jeans and your shaps as you're riding out. Or your What's chinks. trail day? Like uh, when I was working in the Northwest Territories, you'd have like a 7 to 10 to 4, depending on how, how good your pack horses ran trail day, going out to your camp. And... I mean, there's nothing worse than riding through buckbrush or riding through sticks that are coming up and actually pulling at your gear. So I still, to this day, you know, sick of gear, whether you're listening or not, I still wear my jeans, you know, and and some days you just, you have to, because we do have tough gear that we made here, like the Timberline pant with the reinforced knee and backside. But I still, when it comes to the horse end side of things on hunting, I still rely on jeans and every now and then I sneak up the mountain and end up killing something and being like, oh, hashtag Wrangler. Yeah. But yeah. you'd be impressed, actually. I I found I did a season for Joel this year. Oh, right at on. Lake. Yeah, and he was famous in New Zealand when he first started guiding in New Zealand for being the guy that was killing tar in his gun boots. <laughs> so he used to wear a pair of muck boots every day, right? Mm-hmm. And we all thought it was funny. And this year, <laughs> I caught myself. I was on the side of the mountain. We just shot a moose, and I, like right at the top of the mountain, that was high. Oh, and I was sidling underneath the sort of. I was looking for him and I was sidling underneath him some quite some steep stuff and I was like, man, this is not going as well as I thought it was going to go and I sort of looked down and I was like, oh yeah, I'm wearing, wearing gum boots. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I guess that means I've officially transgressed transgress into the <laughs> to the Caesar Lakes slash Joel Wilkinson crew <laughs> to shoot a mountain on the side of a moose wearing a pair of boot, uh, mountain gum boots. mountain on the side of a moose. Man, <laughs> man I am a little bit rough. Coffee. Yeah, exactly. A moose on the side of the mountain wearing a pair of gum boots have uh, made that jump. You know what? I honestly hope we don't see it because that means that we've lost all of those old timers that taught us. Yeah. I think that's the saddest part. You know, we, I grew up in a generation where, you know, you rode for the brand, you know, you earn your hat and John DeVries is one of them. Garth Olofsson, you know, all of the greats that I've had the chance to kind of wrangle under and start my guiding career. And, you know, they, they definitely get on board with the new and upcoming gear. And I think they understand where it's coming from, but they also hung out with the guys that wore jean jackets yeah. <laughs> and the old oil skins. And I tell you what, no one yet has perfected the oil skin but Kula or Outback or one of those companies. There's nothing nicer riding through the mountains yeah. if you got to go through and push brush in an oil skin. Well, there's plenty of people that still wear oil skins in New Zealand. Oh, I know. You guys yeah. are up and coming in old school. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I guess we just ripped into it, but. Can you articulate what you do for a living, Rach? Is that a, is that a possibility? <laughs> can anyone? Can, can you solve anyone, the mystery? Man, if you can solve the mystery on what you actually do for a living. Well, how about you run us through a, a year, a calendar year? So we're in January, January now, <clears throat> so we're at show season. So you're obviously going to hit a few of those. You've got mm-hmm. this and what, Dallas after this? Actually, so in past years, I would be on the show season from January 1st until the middle of March. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, I'm cutting back a bit. I got a kind of a big girl job working on a cattle ranch. Oh, nice. Which is kind of... After living out of a storage locker and having gear bags change in and out over the last 10 years, I kind of decided to grow up and actually have my mailing address match my physical address. <laughs> and a physical address actually being someplace that all of my stuff's unpacked at. So yeah, I was like, yeah. this is going to be a new year. It's a new leaf. Nice. Um, and then kind of going into, you know, the spring season for Bear, I had guided for a couple different outfits. And I had kind of started to move more towards hunting a little bit more for myself. Um in past years, I'd start going north to the mountains and helping with the shoeing crews and helping trail in and then getting ready for the season, especially when I was up in the Northwest Territories for Hale Grindy okay, at Downer so, Outfitters. So now we're sort of jumping into July. Jumping into July, July. that's correct, yeah. Yep. 
And then that season would take you until the middle of September. And that was roving around with a horse crew. Mm-hmm. And I would share that camp with another guy, a trail cook and a wrangler. Yep. And then <clears throat> kind of from there, depending on how the seasons went, um, I'd either jump on with a hunt, you know, if someone else needed an extra crew member, whether it was wrangling or guiding. Um, and then I would kind of make my way down the highway. And in the height of things, when I was guiding for almost nine months of the year, I would hit the buffalo season up at Sickening River Outfitters and then kind That's of make cool. my way down. Yeah, so it was really neat. It was a great way to expand it. And then I think when we were all working for Shockey, Right after Buffalo season, I would head out to Saskatchewan um, and then finish around December and then rinse, repeat. But nice. these days, as you <laughs> as you say, as you're trying to move forward and find have a, that... Have a life. Have a life. <laughs> yeah, have a life. Meet gypsy, meet <sighs> domesticated Rachel, struggling domesticated Rachel. Right. <laughs> I jokingly say, you know, the, I don't know if I can cuss on here, but we'll mm-hmm. abbreviate. You know, the domestic, domestic zero AF. zero ways I'm going to be watching my... Um, <laughs> F-bombs in my current state. This is going to be one of those little episodes with a little oh, E next to it. Oh, there we go. E next to it. No well, worries. Th- there's that one that I kind of pick on myself about, the domestic as fuck one. Like, it's kind yeah. of a running joke. Because uh, Lord knows, like, when I moved into the ranch house, there was, like, three extinguishers. And I told my cow boss, Meg, I was like, you must have heard that I was going to try and cook or something because there's three extinguishers <laughs> in the kitchen. <laughs> right. And Lord knows Auntie Wendy would kill me if I tried to make another cake at her kitchen up at Scoop Lake with icing flying everywhere. But, uh... No, it's it's a fine balance, and as we move forward, I think it'll be neat to see where I'm at next January. I've had a few opportunities over the last couple of years as I tran- transition from full-time hunting guide into potential outfitter or whatever that looks like in the next step. My Ten years ago, Matt, when I got to the show floor, I had a stack of neon orange hunting resumes that I made up. Mm-hmm. And I walked the show floor and I had a vision that was like, I don't have millions of dollars in the bank account. Haven't found the money tree yet. Join the club. Join the club. Tick that box. And I was like, well, every outfitter needs to have a clientele. So when I started working, I had decided that I was going to guide as many different places as I wanted. I wanted to be in the NWT. I wanted to go to the Yukon. I wanted to go back to BC and guide there. So I figured if I was able to kind of figure out where I wanted to be, then I could. the rest would follow suit. And from there, I, I did that. I, for the last 10 years, I've traveled around to the trade shows. I've hosted seminars in exchange for flights and travel and accommodation. I've worked for different outfits across the world. I've, you know, attended and helped on different committees, on conservation committees, on publications. I started writing internationally for a company down um, in Australia, Wild Deer and Hunting Magazine, or Hunting Adventures. And then I was picked up by a childhood favorite, Eastman's. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it's kind of been like, okay, well, now that I've now that I've built this little nest egg, it's like, well, what's next? So I feel like I've the last ten years have kind of been like going to college. You know, yeah. you get your groundwork in and where you want to be, and then I've started just saying what I want out loud a little bit more, yeah. and the right things are kind of falling into place. And Lord knows that comes with, you know, you you find out who you are very quickly, and I'm not going to be you know, the housewife of the year award. But I also have found that there are other things in life that I can excel at. And it's been a wild ride. So this year is going to be kind of neat because I've got a few different opportunities that have come up that I still have to pinch myself over. Cool. And you just got to throw caution to the wind and just take the jump. Awesome. So it sounds sounds like the future is looking pretty bright, but can you... Why on earth do you enjoy guiding? Like, why? What what drives you to guiding? Because I mean, I I know for, I love it. I know what drives me. But it's always interesting for me to hear from other people about what 
drives them to guide? Because it hasn't been an easy road for you. There's been a lot of barriers you've had to push through. So what is it, first of all, that, that really motivates you to be a guide, like a, a professional hunting guide? And what is, let's be honest, a traditionally mm-hmm. man-dominated industry, What's what what drives you? It's funny, I'm staring at this, you know, synthetic campfire across the way here. And <laughs> it's it is very, and I, it's a feeling. Guiding is a feeling. And to me, I, I grew up horse crazy. I wanted a horse so bad that I would be like calling up the newspaper and they're like, how old are you? I'm like, I'm 11, but I'm coming to look at your horse. They're like, we're going to talk to your parents. And being able to kind of figure out that, you know, I loved being outdoors as a kid. I loved riding horses. And then when I started going north to Scoop Lake and it like all came together and I was like, people actually make a living at this. And it was, I'm a little bit of an old soul and I love being able to kind of remove yourself of all these modern conveniences and go back how things were like 150 years ago. And when you're able to give that experience to people and see how it changes them, like it's, I don't, I don't know. It's like a warm, fuzzy feeling that like comes over you when you're able to take these people out, put them on a horse, ride them through some of the most pristine country that you yourself, you're getting paid to do this. Like I'm getting paid to ride a horse and get to go hunting. And there's not always good days. It's not sugar cookies and kittens. You know, you have bears come into camp, you got horses take off bucking, you know, you don't find game, you find game. It's, it's never the same. And that's exciting. It's, I don't know. What does it mean to you? Like I, what what I do for a living, what Kern and I do for a living, you know, whether it be guiding or or running a, a company, and uh, bringing young guys over to, well, here in North America and Canada to have the experience, or in Scotland, um, it all sort of ties back to the same thing. It's 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 a very a guide-like trait to want to bring people along for the experience and show them a good time. So when we're, you know, whether we're sending young guys over here for an OE or I'm, I'm guiding a client, it's it's essentially the same thing. It's a um, get a buzz off seeing other people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, challenge themselves, push through barriers, whether it be mental or physical barriers, get through to the other side and succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and hunting is a, is a very unique vehicle for that experience. It's very timeless too. Look back at how we evolved as a human race. Yeah. You look at a campfire. <laughs> I mean, we might have an electric one across the way here, but <laughs> in the very essence of a hearth, it's a gathering place. Exactly. And I feel like as guides in a, a very how do I say this without sounding like a total foop? Um, you're still that international hearth. You're still taking people on those adventures. You're still, whether you want to clan of the cave bear it or whatever, you're still a part of that global hunting community. And I think that's one thing that as a guide in the very, you know, essence of it is that you're still providing people with that experience. We, we are still humans that walk this earth, whatever your religious background is. We are still people that band together to survive. Right. And I think when you're able to bring people from their office job where they're signing checks or they're sitting in law cases or whatever it is, and you're able to bring them back to the very roots of how we were able to settle the world. Yeah. I I think that's a very powerful thing you can give people. And it's different, too. I'm sure you've been there as well. People either love it or they hate it. And you find out very quickly how comfortable people are with themselves. And I think that's one thing that I always get a kick out of is the people that you can tell they come from high-powered roles and companies where they're very important. And 
they still give them, allow themselves the opportunity to step back and refresh. It's like a recharge. And I think when you take clients on a, on a hunt, you remove them from everything. I mean, now you have an inReach and Iridium phones that are super reliable, but if they don't pick it up and you're sitting there on the side of that mountain on the top of a hill in a valley, calling moose, working on, you know, hunting a sheep, like it's, it's so raw that you can't ignore it. You know, that it's so quiet that it's buzzing. You know, I think that's where almost on every hunt I've looked at my client or a client that I've hunted with with another guide and there's like this overwhelming sense of peace that comes to them. Most of them. And I think that's the greatest gift you can give anyone. I don't know everyone's story. And I think that's one thing I loved when I was a kid, when I was tagging along with John DeVries was asking people, you know, what was their walk of life? How did they get to this moment? And I think that's, I love a good story. I guess one of the, I won't say elephant in the room, but I know just from knowing you over the years, and as you said, we met, what, 10 years ago? <coughs> I still remember when we met. I flew in. I had to take you fencing. You did. Yeah. You did do th- two things that stuck out in my mind. So I flew in from, must have been New Zealand, and mm-hmm. I landed in Whitehorse, and I was very miscombobulated because I didn't realize it was still going to be a light at 11.30 at night. <laughs> so with the time change, I was very confused. So I didn't get a lot of sleep. And uh, then flew into Scoop Lake, and <laughs> I still remember, like, I used to get, when I traveled, the worst blood noses, like the dry air used to, like, ruin me. So I still remember landing on the airstrip um, in Scoop Lake with a bleeding nose um, and meeting you and a few, you know, must have been Tiff and Trina, Trina were there, and, like, I just wasn't, you know, how old were they? I must have been 22. I was 18 or 19. Yeah. So I just wasn't mentally prepared to be greeted by a crew of girls on the landing strip. (laughs) I just wasn't like, just didn't, wasn't in my thinking, wasn't in my anything. So you're right. The first time we spent any actual time together, we went fencing Mm -hmm. and we were just literally checking fence. And then you're the first person to ever show me how to throw a diamond, which in my ignorance at that stage, I literally thought throwing a diamond was... You know, nicking somebody's engagement ring and biffing it away. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean... I was like, it sounds like a fun English, game, but, yeah. like, is that something that you guys do? But, you know, so I still remember in the horse corral you showing me how to, you know, throw a diamond. For those who don't know, a diamond's the, the knot or the cinch you put over a pack horse, tie in the boxes and load on a pack horse. So I remember that. And between then and now, which is, you know, what, close to 10 years later... Um, You've obviously had a lot of challenges as a woman in the hunting industry. Why do you, well, where do you see, <sighs> there's a lot of kick-ass girls in the hunting industry right now. There, there yes. really is. And it's awesome for us to see. And we, as a, me and Curran, as a podcast, have been desperate to try and get a few more of you recorded. Because I think it's a, it's a really strong message in a lot of ways for young women. So... Just give me your perspective on, A, your journey to get to this point and what it's been like, and B, where you see it going. I remember when I first started, there was Devlin Bradford at the time, and I know Rena um, Fleming, now Ponath, and I had heard of a few other gals, but there wasn't many of us. And I didn't have a whole lot of people to, to ask. I Thankfully, I had John DeVries, to be honest. He raised... A house full of daughters and he was very understanding when I burnt pancakes over a fire and I remember having a great deal of talks with him about you know life and you know could I make it as a guide and could I do things 
and one of the outliers has been the way that you conduct yourself in the hunting industry. It doesn't matter when you're, you know, on the show floor or you're riding through, you know, there's a, there's a level of professionalism that I think you, you think about it. <laughs> Women in any job, if they don't conduct themselves in a certain manner, it goes back to the time old thing of sex sales. Right. And I think that's the hardest thing that I've struggled with personally, because I was a tomboy growing up and I struggled with my own personal sense of, of being feminine. And so it, a lot of, you know, whether it's actually something that's real in the industry, I know I've talked to a bunch of other women guides, outfitters and, and hunters, and that's one thing that's made them very uncomfortable is that some of these women are freaking gorgeous and they are bubbly and they're, you know, they have every characteristic of a classic gal. But when you get into a hunting camp, it makes men uncomfortable if, they, if they're not around a lot of women in their life. You know, they don't know how to act. It's like, okay, well, you're a lady, you know, I was raised this way, you know, let me do this for you. And for myself, it's been being okay with that. You know, I can do it all, but not having to feel like I have to do it all. And I think there's this balance of being feminine, but also being professional and being able to do your job. Because I think that's one thing for a lot of the young girls that even today, right now, there's, there's this misconception of there's a lot of glamour. You know, you, oh, you work for a hunting clothing company. Oh, you work with a cooler company. Oh, you know, you work with all these optics companies. You go on these trips. But what they don't understand is that I have cut my nose and I think all the other women that are in the same position on a lot of hard work of wrangling horses, of waking up early, of going to bed hungry because you're the last one in and you didn't get dinner in time, you know, and struggling through all the things that other guides and wranglers did too, male or female. And the, the glamour side is easy to portray and go, oh, you know, I could do that. But when it comes you know, push comes to shove and you actually got to step up to the plate and be able to take a pack string through the mountains by yourself along a trail that you might've been on once or be able to take lead or take charge in an emergency situation or just having the gumption to, it is a powerful thing to be out in the middle of nowhere by yourself. Yeah. And I think like for the young ladies in the industry, if, if you can find out the perfect balance of not misrepresenting who you are as a female, but doing so in such a way that, comes across as professional and classy yeah i think it doesn't matter what you do whether you want to be a guide or a hunter or an outfitter it's one of those things that it's just it's a personal thing mm. and i know i i didn't wear makeup for the longest time <laughs> there's a lot of women that wear makeup in the back country rock on sometimes i wear mascara and then i'll ride through a rainstorm and i'll look like dracula and it's like okay well <laughs> let's let's reconvene on this rachel that wasn't the smartest or i'll be glassing and a eyelash will fall out or something so it's it's all personal choice, but I think 100% of it comes down to how you conduct yourself. Yeah. You can be glammed up, ready for the shows, and still be able to carry a backpack just like the boys in the mountains. But it's all in how how you – it's self-respect. Yeah, and I, I think you've, you've sort of nailed it because the, those of you, the, the girls that we're talking about, the kick-ass ones in the industry, have found a way to A, be feminine, be a woman, be themselves. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to push to comes to shove, mm-hmm. you know, kick ass on the side of the mountain, do all the jobs that everybody else can do, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I've always, yeah, I, I can't say I understand because I'm not, I'm a bloke, <laughs> I can get away with yeah. a shitload of stuff, but I, I, I can certainly see that often when, you know, a hunter gets off a plane, mm-hmm. you can see a thought process is going on in his head mm-hmm. when he finds out that he's got a girl for a guide right yes so this is the no matter what you do you're always fighting that 
stigma wrong or right. So being able to move past that and just get on with it and do it, I think is probably one of the key points to being successful because if you can... Yes, and I very vividly... Actually, it turned out to be my first stone sheep client that I ever guided and my first goat client. Um, I was standing on the dock with John DeVreeves and this Italian jumped off and he goes, oh, I have grandpa and the girl. And John just gave me an elbow and he looked down and gave me a wink. And he goes, yep, you do. Hold on, partner. You're in for a ride. (laughs) (laughs) He took me aside that night after I finished the dishes and we're kind of making a game plan for this mixed bag hunt. And he goes, you know, you're going to get this a lot. Yeah. And he's like, if you keep your head down, you work hard. Actions speak louder than words. Absolutely. And I always, I, w- I can remember the cup of dinatia that I was drying when he said that. And <laughs> that, o- that old fella, he can walk the shame out of most men. And we took him on what he calls a, a detention walk. If he's going to start getting lippy, he took him on a detention walk. And we walked <laughs> him into the ground. And then I'll never forget the moment where John took us up. We were going towards what we call uh, Eastman's Valley. And uh, it's a beautiful part of the world. It is a beautiful part of the world. It was my first place he'd ever taken me wrangling. And I'd had a runaway and burnt pancakes. And so we were sitting there having a laugh. And we ended up spotting a few sheep as we went around the corner. And I remember him looking over going, okay, girl, you're up. And I went, what? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, you're going to have to run. (laughs) Go. And I I think our Italian client at the time, he he remember looking at John and looking at me. And I was headed off. And he's like, well, I guess I got to follow her. (laughs) And... I'm it's sorry, I'm still laughing. I, the, you say the words John DeBreeze and Dinatia. Like, <laughs> so many memories. I can't not talk uh, about it. Like, you remember that story when me and, I don't know, I can't remember if it was you me. You dislocated your shoulder coming off the mountain with a moose? Oh, and yeah. I flew in to save you? Yeah, that might have been it. Oh, that was my remember. favorite story just because <laughs> I got to fly in. But <laughs> no. I'd actually forgotten about that. Yeah, no, and I remember because John had like, put all these stakes up with flags because there'd been grizzlies in the area and he's like oh we ran out of daylight but you know we got most of the meat out you just got to go back for the meat in the cape and i remember going okay well it's a really big plateau <laughs> he's like oh you can follow the tracks and most of it's moss and unless you've been tracking through the moss yeah, and you have an idea of what it is it's sort of hummocky mm. so we found it but nothing it was, up there yeah anyway. no that's not the story i was talking about oh i was talking about that story when uh it was me and tom and we we're doing dishes and then there was, I think Wilma and Neil were in camp, mm-hmm. and you were in camp, mm-hmm. and John decided he was going to go have a shower. Oh my God, no. Oh no, Matt. We're not <laughs> even going to tell the rest of this story, because I just have a visual of... <laughs> by far one of the, And to be fair, John DeRees is... If you're listening, John, we love you. You're we one of the gen- you. gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen of the hunting industry. But this is one he of the is an acclaimed, world claimed guide, a sheep guide that won the Galato Award. Yeah, which is a, a lifetime achievement. Lifetime achievement. He's also done that for the guide out of BC. Before you stake this poor man <laughs> on his scandally like, clad outfit. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, it was you know this guy's a guy that's probably guided seventy five plus stone sheep More. over. A, He'd be over almost a hundred. I'm sure. Really? Wow. Which is. You know, it, to a Kiwi listening, it doesn't sound like an animal, a lot of animals, but when you're only doing three or four a season and it's, you know, 10, 15, 21, days. 21 day hunts, <laughs> yeah. that's, you know, that adds up pretty quick. So he is one of the, <coughs> literally the legends of the industry, but <laughs> we, <laughs> I hate you for bringing this oh, story up. It's, it's been years of counseling. Yeah, no kidding. And you are just such a, you're at that stage in your life, you were young, and but you were very 
focused on what you wanted to do. You were straight up and down. There was no anything. And, and John was the same. And we were doing dishes, and he was being a bit cheeky. He's a funny man. And at Denatea, well, the old cookhouse at Denatea, it no longer exists. What? It's gone. Oh, man. So we were standing there doing the dishes, and just through the thin plywood wall on the other side was a shower. So me and another Kiwi guy, they were, you know, doing having a bit of a chat and banging on the wall and making fun of him a little bit, and he was sort of responding. And he'd gone in there and forgotten to take his towel, which was hanging over the fire in the cookhouse. And... <laughs> we're banging on there and he goes oh I forgot my towel and he comes running back and Denatia had a big glass window mm-hmm. so he ran around and I noticed as he was running around he was wearing one of those full length body um, oh, <laughs> thermal outfits <laughs> that has the button down front like the button down front where your crutch is and he didn't know but it was buttoned down and it was open <laughs> And like he came around and like burst into the cookhouse and like was standing like there rocking back and forth going I need a well, towel I need a w- towel it was worse he was like so surprise oh and everybody <laughs> just collapsed laughing because he had this open and it was and he had no idea so he's jumping around back and forth and you were sitting by the fire trying to like get away and it was just the most hilarious scene he grabbed his towel and ran back into the shower and he didn't realise so he got all the way back around into the shower that his thing was unbuttoned <laughs> and you could just hear this moment where he was chatting, chatting, chatting and then it just went silent when he was like, oh. I oh, just flashed everyone. Oh, I'm so sorry. And by that point, we were all on the ground just in absolute stitches and we started calling him Flash after that. <laughs> Flash which he, he hated it because he's just such a he's gentleman a for the rest of Christian the Christian fellow that would never have ever thought oh, that he would was, start his stripping career at it was priceless. God, now I'm going to need another six months of counseling. Poor <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, was, I was still trying to, I remember trying to tell that story to Darwin when it first happened. Oh, I was God. laughing so hard that, like, he just started laughing because he knew it was going to be good. Whatever, Whenever I got to the punchline, it was going to be a good one. But uh, anyway. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, if you're not having fun in the backcountry, you're not trying hard enough. No, that's exactly right. I think that's one of the cool things, you know, over the last decade is being able to expand that proverbial campfire to extend a whole host of friends and family. And if you're on a hunting trip and you don't have a couple good cock-ups and stories, you must have not done anything or had any good fun. Yeah. So it's it's neat. Are you still doing your podcast? So um, this last year and a half has been insane. What I have found out about having a podcast it is a lot it, of work, it, it takes a lot of work. And when I started the podcast, I was living between Montana and a little house in Jaffrey, B.C. by a train track that had no cell phone service and no Wi-Fi. And then when I would go down to the States, I was there for a small amount of time. And so, you know, there's a time old coach saying, well, you're making excuses, you know, make adjustments. Well, to host a podcast, you have to have some kind of structure in your life. I did it for a while. I really enjoyed it. Um... I enjoyed listening to it. Oh, thank you. Well, this, this is kind of like a half by eight. Half by eight. Why aren't doing anymore? Kind of. Um, I've been toying with the idea. Um, I had some crazy things go on in 2017, and I ended up going north. Um, that proverbial gypsy life led me to go last year, and I stayed up at Stone Mountain Safaris, um, and I ended up staying there with, uh, you know, an ex-partner of mine. And I learned a little bit about trapping from him because he had committed to staying and trapping for the season. And so that was a really neat way for me to kind of... Nothing straightens out like a relationship like trapping for a winter, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, you know what? Honestly, you know, it would have been a dream of, you know, I 
I think very highly of that person in the end. Uh, they, I got to learn a lot. They were learning. I was learning. Leif and Kelly were wonderful to live with. But in Toad River, you don't have good Wi-Fi. You have no, no cell phone service. I actually had the time of my life last yeah. winter. It's amazing. Um, like, yes, yeah. you have to talk to each other. <laughs> yes. Like, and generally, but, like, as a general overcast, like, mm-hmm. when you don't have Wi-Fi, you don't have an in-reach, you don't have all that stuff. Like, it forces people to have actual conversations these days, which... Exactly. And you know what? Living... It was like taking a step back, and living last year in Toad River was an amazing experience. Yeah. The community there was so welcoming. You know, you're having functions. I was busier last winter than I ever have been. Getting to go snowmobiling and check other people's trap lines, getting to learn about it when um, I got to go out on the snow machine, (laughs) learning about the snow machine. I was like, oh, yeah, I've snowmobiled. I was like, okay, okay. I freaking flipped it. I got it off the truck, and I flipped it on the first (laughs) snow. Bank. And I remember uh, David looking back and going, well, you're going to have to figure this one out. And he was very understanding. And um, I rolled it once down the hill and it, I'm a horseback rider. Okay, let's yeah. just go back to the fundamentals. Well, trust me, I've wrecked more snow machines in my short career on snow machines <laughs> than any any human. Like I broke Darwin's one. He'd owned it for about an hour. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't feel so bad then. I haven't broke one yet, so to speak, touch wood. But I, I'm a horseback rider. And for those of you who haven't, especially in New Zealand, you don't think you have many snow machines, if all, any down no, there. No, very little. So you don't ride it like a horse. No. And I had a Tundra and that I was using at the time. And this Tundra, to me, was a yellow drunk dolphin. And I had to ride this yellow drunk dolphin. But I kept my feet on either side of the pedal thinking it was a saddle. And then I learned very quickly that one must throw your body into it and pull and use muscles that you didn't know about. So it was it was educational, let me put it that way. Yeah, it's and, hard uh, to explain what it's like. It's a kind of cross between driving a quad and um a jet ski. Like you, a, if you sit on dolphin. a yeah, you know, yeah. sit on a snow machine and turn the steering wheel to the left and expect to turn <laughs> you you're <laughs> just gonna go straight into yeah. the trees. Like it doesn't yeah. work like that. You actually have to physically get off the yes. saddle on one side and lean and, and hang into the skis and use your body and be able to pull this machine that like, yeah. I don't know how heavy they are, but they're freaking heavy. Yeah. The, and the Tundra was one of the lighter ones that I had. Yeah, and they're deliberately tippy for mm. that reason. So you can mm-hmm. literally rock them over and, and dig them in and, yeah. and turn in the powder. But it's, you know, driving a snow machine on a groomed logging road mm-hmm. is a lot different from driving a snow machine in the powder. Like, it's oh. it's a com- <laughs> yeah. like it's a completely different sport. To yes. the point, it's the difference between skiing and the on a groom run and then... Oh, and then backcountry heli-skiing. Skiing. Yes. Yeah, skiing in three feet of powder. Like, it's exactly. completely different. And that's where, like... To to the credit, I got to go in once the trails were broken. And, you know, you had to go through the creeks and stuff like that. But regardless, long story short, I got my ass handed to me in my first couple of days on a snow machine and then found out, you know, you don't stop when you go on overflow and it's icy and you're backwards and you're trying to rev it to go up and all you're doing is spinning really wicked circles. And everyone's like, well, we're going to figure it out. But um, the podcast, I, w- I was there until March. I did the tri- trade show season. I had full anticipation of being able to purchase the gear and get it back up and running. And going into last year, we ended up actually, for the first time in 10 years, rented a house. And I had a home. And then from there, you know, between setting up a pasture and trying to figure out the next stage of life and figuring out where I was going to go guiding, because I just, I'd I done a stint. Did you? You own horses, don't you? <laughs> Matt. Yes. We've been through this. Matt, Matt likes horses. He really loves horses. I he love just horses, but doesn't just like owning horses. You own horses. I own horses. You don't yes. have any time. Yes. And you spend all your money on your horses? No. Wrong. Just some of it. (laughs) As he looks at me with a disgusted look on his face. So, long story short, this last year and a half has been 
something for me. I needed to have a home. I needed to have structure. And as far as figuring out what the bigger game plan was, I dabbled in a few different things. I actually, you know, I got, had an opportunity to go work for friends of mine at the Prophet Musquab, and I did a hunt with them and got to be on one of my girlfriend's like second or third sheep she'd ever killed awesome. and be there with her on that and share that experience. And then I left to go look at an area and then I ended up going back in and, and wrangling from a partner at the time and taking kind of a, a step back, but not a step back. I was able to kind of reflect a lot on myself and it's like, okay, well, what do I really want to do? Yeah. You know, and then it gets to that page in life where you're also like, well, you know, I do want a family. <laughs> and you're like, well, if I want a family, you know, you can put them in a bun in the oven, you can still guide. But when they're in the back and they're screaming and you're trying to stalk in on sheep, probably not going to happen. Yeah, probably not gonna happen. So this last year has been a great deal of reflection and figuring out that next step. And I think, you know, as I move forward, I've, I've landed another job that typically and historically shouldn't come my way. What's that? I'm, I'm working on a cattle ranch, riding as a cowboy. Lord knows I'm going to be working on my r- roping skills because, you know, they're half pie and I've roped a pen about four years ago you have to explain that a to me and everybody okay so historically there's a lot of ranches and i know um ex-partners of i i've been able to come on work on their family ranches um but to go and ride for a brand there's not many operations that will have a female worker cowboy role so when you say ride for a brand you're riding for riding for a cattle operation so a brand is literally The the brand that's on the cattle yes and you're riding in the open free range looking after them finding them Finding them, doctoring them, roping and healing. Um, you know, you got to be able to, to hold your own. And that's one thing about this operation that I got hired on with is I told them, I was very honest. I was like, you know, I, I can heal. It's been a few years. I have a little bit of knowledge, but treat me as an open book and I'm really happy to learn. So heal, that's getting a rope around their back legs. Yes, that's correct. Sorry. and From horseback. From horseback. That's correct. Sounds easy. Sounds, <laughs> sounds super easy. Um, so... To be honest, I, I landed this job and it ended up coming with a few perks as I needed them down the road. And um, it's also going to be a job that's going to let me have some stability. Yes, I do own horses, Matthew. Mm-hmm. And my horses are paid for while I work at this outfit. Oh. So to me, I'm, I'm kind of laughing to myself because it's like, well, I never thought I'd actually be working on a cattle ranch that was of my own accord, not you know through a partner or through anything like that. Driving a feed truck, learning how to dance with a loader. Thank you, Meg Dowd. Big shout out to her to be able to teach me how to drive this thing. I was like, I am not good at video games, but I'll learn. (laughs) (laughs) When you get into these loaders that are like 644 or whatever it is, John Deere, and it's like, well, my one-ton pickup truck feels very small. (laughs) 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 But uh, so that's kind of given me some stability and and we're fresh into this new year. What are we, the 11th or 12th today? Something like that. Something like that. You know, um... And with these opportunities coming down the road in the hunting industry, I, I'm in a good place. I can't quite reveal yet, so maybe we'll circle okay, back in we'll a bit. Back. But uh, well, I just that's want. Exciting. Are yeah, you guiding is. again this year? Yes, yes, and no. Why? Okay, here's a question. Obviously, oh. you've got something coming up, which yes. may interfere with the guiding season. But let's just assume that at this stage, you're still a professional hunting guide. Yes. Full time. Yes. Why do you enjoy sheep hunting? Explain that to oh. me. Oh. Dirty question. Yeah, real dirty question. <laughs> real dirty question. If anyone has ever sheep hunted, you don't know until you get there. Like, you know, there's this lure, you walk around the shows, you're like, oh, it's a curly sheep, cool. But then you realize where these sheep live. And you realize the lure behind them. And you can't call them. They have 10 by 42 vision, so they can see phenomenally well. Their noses are on point as far as their smelling capability. But they live in some of the most exquisite places in the world. I think you put the nail on the head. It's where they live. Yeah. And, I mean, 
I've had sheep be very clever that have been hunted before, and they're a total nightmare to try and get on. And I've had, you know, very lucky chances with sheep being in the right place at the right time and setting my clients up and having the sheep walk in, not at the 200 yards they're supposed to be at, but at 800, you know, or, or at 18 yards. And I was like, oh, good. Well, this is a surprise. But um, it's the lure of where they live. They are a neat animal, considering that they only have horns on their head and they're still able to survive over the last millennia. It's not like they've got a huge rack that they can defend themselves. They've got to be very crafty. They've got to be able to walk around those precipices like kings of the monarch of the mountains yeah they are really really cool and it's it's kind of a funny thing when we talk about sheep hunting particularly in a new zealand setting because we have so many quote unquote sheep in new zealand they are very different they don't have wool they have hair they live right up on top of the mountains and it's you know it's a, a very for me anyway this is my own personal side of it but it's a very pure form of trophy hunting and the fact that you know, I know trophy hunting is a dirty word and you call yourself a trophy hunter. You know, even on the way to the convention this morning, there's billboards up along the highway from Peter. You know, just they're, they're just so off base in terms of their anti-hunting marketing. They, there's zero fact or logic to what they're putting on billboards. Mm-hmm. It's all about inciting the emotions of anti-hunters. You know, this is a bear that you know, people associate with a teddy bear and blah 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 thank you disney yeah thank you disney but circling back to why sheep in terms of a trophy hunt they're so um it's, it's very pure is a where they live you're up in the mountains you're doing a thing it's physically mentally very tough secondly you're looking for a sheep that progressively gets bigger mm-hmm. and better mm-hmm. more attractive as a trophy the, the older it gets and you can age them and you can which is really cool. And anyone that's hunted tar or chamois, you can count age rings on horn, which mm-hmm. is, is a really cool thing. So when you're looking at a sheep, you know, and you start getting to the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, 14 even sometimes years old, like the appeal for a purest sheep hunter just goes up and up and up. But mm-hmm. those sheep become harder and harder and harder to find as that age class increases. So that's it's exactly a, right. It's a very pure form of trophy hunting and the fact that if you're going to kill a sheep, the older it is, the better it is overall to harvest. And I, I, I just I just love that that essence that you can spend 14 days looking for that one for sheep. the right animal. And you can see a couple of hundred mm-hmm. sheep in that period, and it's a turn down, turn down, turn down process until you find the right one to harvest. It's an emotional roller coaster, really. It really is. You know, Jack O'Connor, I think, said it the most pointed and poetic sheep hunters are romantics you know they love the far off places and i think that's one thing that especially as a conservationist you don't want to harvest your younger animals you we lord knows when i was in the territories there have been some studs of six-year-old sheeps full tipped out and it's like no let them live yeah and it's really hard to tell your client look like he's not old enough when they're sitting there looking at a beautiful specimen but it's it's also very cool that it's like no this animal obviously he has superior genetics like we had a cap, you know, 10 years is where we aimed for better. 10 or better was great. You know, every now and then you might get a nine-year-old ram that, you know, had a false ring or something that you might have misjudged. But it's one of the animals that within like a 95 percentile, you can be guaranteed that if you at least hit 10, you might get a surprise and you might be an 11-year-old sheep with a yep. really tight annual eye right around its horn. So I think that's also one of the cool things about it. You know, you can guess ages on elk and you can guess ages on other animals and moose, you know, the way their bellies swoop and they're hollowed out their shoulders, you know, their bell and just their overall bodily appearance. And, and with sheep, that's every bit as true as well. Yeah. But 
That is the one really yeah, cool thing about cheese. Instant feedback. I mean, you can do it through a spotting scope, but when you've got one on the ground and you actually get your hands on it, it's like there's no second guessing. It's instant feedback. Yeah. You've just shot a ten-year-old sheep, or you've just stuffed up and shot a seven-year-old sheep. It's a, it's cool, and again, is why I enjoy the guiding so much. And, and sheep guiding is a is a high pressure is high pressure for a guide because you've got to go as invested what forty thousand US dollars. Yeah, depending. <laughs> depending on where you are. Yeah. So that would probably be the average. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot on the line for him. Like, it's it's not like he gets his money back if he gets to the end of the 14 days and, and doesn't find mm-hmm. a sheep to harvest. Mm-hmm. So... And I think that's where his guides... Like, I know when I first started, you, that's probably one of the biggest things, like, going forward for any young guide is trying to remember that at the end of the day, you can't control what the animals are going to do. No. You can do the best thing you can. But I know that number game really played on me when we were younger. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you got a guy, you're going to work your butt off, you're going to try and make it worth his while and show him a true hunt. Yeah. Everybody's excited on day one, two, and three. <laughs> By yeah. day three and four, especially yeah. depending on what you've seen. Yeah. It's, uh, things change. Things change. Things can change. Sometimes you get some guys that their day one and their day 10, whether they've seen shot or going home empty handed, mm-hmm. um, they, they know the game. Yeah. Right? And I mean, there's, you know, Darwin, who we both work for and spend a lot of time with the Kerry family. His, I still remember him telling me that the, the mark of a true guide, and I, I had this conversation with one of the Pace brothers the other day. The mark of a true, a true guide is, you know, the end of a twenty-one day sheep hunt. We haven't shot an animal. Yep. And the client goes to the outfitter and says, "Look, I want to rebook next year, pay my forty thousand again, and hunt with the same guide, without harvesting a sheep." And that, to me, if you can get to that as a guide, because at that point you've done everything you can, you've hunted you can you've explained at every juncture and avenue to your client what's mm-hmm. happening why it's happening why you're making the decisions you're making mm-hmm. and he agrees mm-hmm. or she agrees more mm-hmm. girls are doing it these days and got to the end of it and at the end of it his reflection is well, we, we've done everything we could do and it was just hunting and we didn't get it done so yeah. i want to come back and do exactly the same next year because i enjoyed myself so much that's my that guide. is the biggest compliment i think any guy can ever have yeah i think so <laughs> So go back to that, the women and hunting. Do you get a lot of women clients or are you still mainly blokes? Um, to be honest, I Anna Vorsek, I've hunted with her two or three different times. Um, and she came up to the Yukon after I guided her down on a bison. Um, I do and I don't. Uh, I think it's one thing that I think if more women knew or like say, you know, say a future outfit that I work at. You know, if they make it known, look, we do have a woman guide. She can do all these species, and they and it turns into a marketable thing. Then I think more gentlemen. I get a lot of messages on Instagram or on Facebook. Hey, my wife's looking for a hunt. I'd really like you to go with her. Just it would make me feel better if there's a female there, especially if I'm not coming along. Um, so I think yes, going forward, I think there is there's like a comfort factor for other women. Yeah. Um, I know my previous boss Harold. He was very good about it. You know, a lot of times he, if he, depending on how he would judge a client, he'd be like, um. We have a girl. Uh, she's probably she's free for that hunt. She's going to probably take you if you're okay with that. And nine times out of ten, he was the one that told me too. He's like, you know, if that client comes back and says, you know what, I really don't want a female guide. He's like, chances are you don't want to guide him and the poor bastard is going to get him anyways. He's going to be miserable for them too. Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things that at the end of the day, you do your job. And I have been blessed to have some amazing clients, yeah. male and female. And, you know, the future is only looking brighter and I'd love to take more women out. I have a lot of female friends, you know, especially a bunch of girls my age that we're trying to figure out how we can do hunts together and, and be able to share a campfire. And I think 
you know, it's only going to get better that way. Yeah, and it's a, it's for me and Karen, we're very pro and trying to get more girls involved. And mm-hmm. I mean, talking to you is a is a, a big thing for us. Like we on the podcast, we want to get more girls who are involved in the hunting industry and, and part of the hunting industry to really push that envelope in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. I think it's you know at least publicly underestimated a lot of the time still mm-hmm. all over the world. Mm-hmm. And you know, this year we've got another, you know, we've got another girl on the program and mm-hmm. we're very we're trying our hardest to push more girls into that wrangling role because i mean 10 years ago when we started i still remember outfitter telling me like unless you can lift a quarter of moose onto the high side of a horse mm-hmm. it's no good to me mm-hmm. and then if you say yeah she can then they turn around and say it's just not worth the risk yeah and it's <clears> and that's that's a shitty thing to have to fight against but i think we're on the I was just being able to do your job. Like, I've had female wranglers. And actually, I ended up having one of your female wranglers this year, Jess. Oh, yeah. How'd she she ended up... She did awesome. You know what? She came... She had done she a bunch of... She tried to put a holder <laughs> on a grizzly bear, didn't she? <laughs> she probably taught that grizzly bear some manners, too. Um, but I actually... I had her come... And we did a spike camp mission looking for sheep in an area that hadn't been... And she had a smile on her face the whole time. And it was one of those things where it's like, well, if you're comfortable doing this, yeah, oh, yeah. And then she went and fired up the chainsaw. I was like, well, okay. okay. Here we go. And she had her first real taste of wrangling when the horses decided to leave, and it's lucky we put the drift fence up. And she, you know, she she turned into a hand. Yeah. And it just goes to show you, she, you know, she had done a little bit of English riding, and so we had quite a joke about you know stirrup lengths and stuff like that in the bush. And um, <laughs> you know, I I think the biggest thing is try. Yeah. And if you have an open mind, and you're willing to do a job, it doesn't matter male or female. You know, there's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. I wrangled this past season. The horses buggered off of me. And so I came back into camp in a fit. And I was like, I don't know where the horses are. And the grizzly tracks everywhere. And, you know, even veteran guides, we have off moments. And it's like, oh, for sake, well, I'm going to have to go find year. this one. My best wrangle, probably four minutes. The worst wrangle was like 17 and a half hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you, when you're, you're looking oh. at mountain ranges, think, I wonder if I can get over that bus and cut them <clears> off <throat> on the other side. You know, you're going to have a long day. Yes. So it, yeah, but there's nothing right. like bringing in the herd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is, to a point, but if you bring in the herd and two hours late and there's a client standing on the porch tapping his watch, looking at you going, why am I hunting? It's a, It can be a little bit of an um, <coughs> intense experience. It can, but that's where it's like, well, you know, if we had a pasture, it'd be easy. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> and well, they go through the muskeg and all of a sudden half the hobbles are off and the hobbles are off the wrong horses and they decide to go for a walkabout. Yeah. Hey guys, let's go home. Sure, why not? <laughs> sure. Highway? <laughs> Should we go to the highway? Yeah. Especially after that first snowfall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, season's up, we're gone. Season's up, we're done. Yeah. Uh, no, guys, you still have two more hunts. It's only October 1st. Yeah. No, we're done. <laughs> Send in our resignation. Tell Leif to pick us up on the highway. Love hate relationship, right? And I, you know, I mean, you taught me to horse ride when I arrived in Canada. Oh my gosh, I'm Buckeye, and you came over to the Elk Hill. Never in my life have I ridden a horse before. Period. That was the first time I'd ever ridden. Zero experience, for better or worse. So all my bad habits stem from that day. (laughs) In your shorts. Yeah, in my shorts. (laughs) Why do you guys wear jeans all the time? And then he swings his leg over. He's like, oh. why are my legs chafing? <laughs> <laughs> no hair on the inner thigh, hey, man? No hair on the inner thigh. Not a lot of skin left on the front. It's uh, <laughs> certainly not a <laughs> not something I'd recommend. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all in all seriousness, they are. it's just such a pure way to hunt. There's nothing better than being on a good horse, riding through the mountains and actively hunting. Like stop here, glass, ride, stop here, glass, ride. It's quiet. It's 
it's peaceful. It's peaceful. It's in sync with everything else. There's no no noise, no engines, no no nothing, right? And, it, and when it's going good, it's, going it's really good. It's the best feeling in the world. But the trade-off is, is sometimes it's really. <laughs> they uh, are animals at about a thousand pounds or more, and they do each of them have a mind and a personality of their own. Exactly. So when you know you're in the dark trying to find horses. Mm. Listen for horses in the p- pouring rain, and you find them, and they take off and run in the wrong direction. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only natural to have yelling, <laughs> curse I, words, screaming. Yeah, ah, uh, yes. only natural to have an emotional response. Oh. Um, and I must admit, you know, over the years, I've, you know, in cases I haven't had horses, I've really missed them. Mm. And then in other cases, what I haven't had horses, I've been like, thank God I don't have any horses. <laughs> you know, get up in the morning. <laughs> oh, look, the Argo's still where I parked it last night. That's fantastic. That yeah. was actually. Give I, it a pat. You know, or, you until know, they take don't your turn argo. over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> until they break and then you're screwed. And then you're suddenly like, man, I wish I had a horse again. <laughs> I remember when I was moving Argo's with Woe and, and uh, we came to a creek and it's like, this would be a piece of piss the horse mm-hmm. and we're like winching it across and taking on water and there's yelling and screaming and i'm like <laughs> this is supposed to be fun yeah exactly <laughs> but oh, yeah. Yeah. i i had an argo uh this year actually when i was going i did a couple of hunts for joel and uh there was a a little wire attached to the coil that for whatever reason had broken but it was still attached and i didn't know this but it, Argo started running on one cylinder and we were, <coughs> oh no, shit, five hours ride from anywhere and, you know, five hours ride, probably an eight hour walk from anywhere and I had a client that couldn't walk a hundred yards, let alone eight hours. So it's, a, it's not a good feeling when it breaks down and you, come, you become reliable on it and then suddenly it, it's dead mm. and then you're like, okay, this completely changes everything now I'm, it's getting dark I'm eight hours from anywhere I've got a guy that can't walk you know it's it's not a good feeling so next minute you're underneath your hood of the Argo and you're trying your you know, it's a problem solving <laughs> exercise not a mechanic from a background of mechanics yeah. neither so yeah. by pure fluke I was just wiggling shit and this while while I came off and I was like well that must be it so I stripped it and put it back in and everything worked I was so lucky like so lucky there was zero skill involved 100% luck and I got back and I was like, man, this can go sideways. Like if you, if, if something happens, mm. mm-hmm. you get so comfortable because you're not even <clears throat> thinking like a horse guide anymore because you just throw everything in the back. Like you're you not just, balancing loads. You just, like you're instead of packing a lunch, you just take a whole blue tub full of everything that you could potentially want for lunch mm-hmm. over the next week and you just throw mm-hmm. it in there, blocks of cheese, mm-hmm. loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. You know, everything goes in. You just throw it in the back of the Argo, no problem. You know, you get a moose, you just back the Argo up to it and throw it in the back, no problem. Horses, you've got to be a little bit more on point, and I think that means that you're a little bit more prepared for, you know, things to go sideways, and I think it's probably a little safer in the long run because you don't get complacent. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah, complacent. Yeah, it's funny. I think wrangling teaches, even even when you take a step back from guiding, you go back to wrangling. There's a horse who's infamous at Ram Mountain named Pepper. <laughs> she was an old broodmare turned pack horse slash client horse. That has zero fucks to give. <laughs> and she repeatedly, after a first snowfall, or when she decides in hobbles, she will walk them in one direction. And it was a godsend this year. I love like that I, little hobble walk. Oh, like, 
Like they got business out front. Their ears are perky forward. They're swishing their tail. They think they're making the great grand escape. She, I seen her. I was outside cutting wood, and all of a sudden, Pepper lifted up her head. And she looked at me. She looked down the trail. She went into everyone in the pasture, rallied the troops, and just started shuffling. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fucker. <laughs> so I watched her. And when they started lining out, I went and caught her in the other one and led them over, got everyone else's hobbles undone, and I walked them to the other end of the airstrip, yeah. down across the creek to where they had been. And there is grass out the wazoo. And I'm like, be happy. <laughs> yeah. So I waited. And I got back to camp, and I put the halters away. And all of a sudden, I hear this, tink, 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 clash, clash, clash. Like, yeah. What the Sam hell is going on? So I sat out on the porch, and I kind of watched. She led them. There's this, uh, at this camp, there's an airstrip, and the cabins are here, and there's a creek that runs all the way around it. Yeah. That witch walked them down the creek so that they didn't have tracks. <laughs> I kid you not, I listened to them clatter for half an hour <laughs> in their hobbles, and there's a spot where it goes right past the outhouse. So I snuck over there, and here she is, lined out, nose to the wind, tail swishing, ears forward, walking them. And I, I'm not going to lie, I did burst in tears. I'm like, you freaking witch, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> and here's, there goes my saddle horse, this little little Chinook mare, and she looks over, and she kind of gives me like, oh, well, I don't know. Everybody, just, everybody else is doing everybody it. Everybody else is doing it. <laughs> season's over, season's apparently. Season's over. And I was like, well, we don't have a corral there that worked. I was like, I'm not leaving her in. So I... Got up a little bit extra early, threw a couple halters, and then told everyone, I was like, well, I'll probably be walking to the highway, so I'm going to leave a little earlier. And I followed them, and then thank God that there was the old trail. She took them down the old trail, which I felt kind of bad for them because there was no food. Yeah. So they spent the whole night shuffling a two-hour walk one direction, and they were standing there starving. And there she was, still lined out. I'm like, I'm riding your ass back. You're not kidding. <laughs> anyway, it's, you know, the hunting camps, I think that's one of the funny things. As long as you're prepared to do your job and just have a laugh about it. Sometimes you cry. There's been tears of frustration uh, I've cried 100% but I think it makes you a better person Yeah, you know what you can and can't take what's next on the list for Rachel's hunting what oh. do you want to hunt next well Matthew I have a late season goat draw that's good for right now me too whereabouts where Terrace 615 really well sometime so potentially in this next week I'm hopefully going after a goat I don't have time for that. I would love to. I was supposed mm. to go in October, but I was mm. going with, you know, little Stevie Pereira lives in Terrace? Nope. That's a good Canadian joke. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> nope. Don't know him. Nope. Um, we were supposed to go with him, but his jet boat broke down. Oh, shit. And so we cancelled it. And then I just now, from now, we're straight back to New Zealand for training and all mm. that kind of stuff. So I've been on that hunt three times. It's kicked my ass. <laughs> well, see, yeah. So I have... I'm headed home tomorrow from SCI. I have a week feeding cows, and then I'm headed to SHOT Show, and then I have a week opportunity between SHOT Show and Sheep Show. Because after that, we already had a calf hit the ground. I got a message from the cow boss last night saying, minus 30, we got one good mama. I was like, oh, crap, please don't all start dropping. <laughs> so yeah, that's early. It is really early. Imagine getting born into a minus 30 degree weather. That would suck. <laughs> Yeah, here's a snowbank. <laughs> but uh, so I have a week opportunity and I've got a few friends that have kind of stepped up that know the area. I've never hunted coastal BC um, in the winter <laughs> and I've seen pictures and it's heard stories. Brutal. And uh, yeah, so I'm hopefully right next going on a goat hunt. It's good to the end of February. If I can't make it happen between the shows, if I can get all my chores and stuff done at the ranch, I might try and sneak away if I still have someone to go with. But it, it's not safe to do by yourself. <clears throat> no, especially not. not this time of year and so 
that's coming up this year. I'm putting in for everything under the sun when it comes to draws. Um, I was very thankful. I took my first sheep ever with Harold. Um, and my dad was actually on that hunt oh, back in 2017. Awesome. This year, I figure every other year, if I kill a sheep, that'd be okay with me. So being a BC resident, I'm either looking at a big horn or a stone this year. Thank you. Thank you. Um, fingers crossed. I'll tell you what, that goat hunting ranch, you know Mike Schroeder? Mm-hmm. So back when Mike was uh, not a farmer and out of shape, <laughs> I hope you listen to this, Mike. <laughs> oh, poor <laughs> Mike. he was like a badass hunting guide mm. backpack in really good shape. And that was back in the days where I used to, you know, walk for a living as well. So we went and we did that terrace hunt and we, we climbed up this mountain, glass across, found a couple of really big billy goats. Right, we're going to get them tomorrow. Started at 3 a.m. <laughs> and we climbed through the trees in the frozen snow, got above tree line, climbed from 3 a.m. to I think it was about 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we figured that we were, must be getting close. And I'll never forget the feeling we came across this ridge. <laughs> looked up and all it was was like rock face with frozen like waterfalls like literally just ice right and we were maybe two-thirds if we're being generous but halfway probably to them it was two o'clock in the afternoon you could still see them up there i've never been so deflated (laughs) like talk about like put a pin in your ego and we we looked at each other and we tried for another 10 minutes but it got to the point that we were it was shit loads of snow it was warm mm-hmm. we're just getting an, an announcement i don't know how bad it's going to be for everybody listening welcome to sti this is what they do i'm really waiting for them to like have an announcement it's like free beer sick of booth go <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> just kidding but snow lots of it and it was warm enough that the snow was wet trying to climb in oh. snowshoes and to the point we got steep enough that we were just walking directly mm-hmm. into the side of the mountain. So you just, rather than climbing, you just start burrowing straight oh, in geez. and the snow falls on your head. So it's, it, it kicked our ass. Like there's two guys that, you know, were in at that time pretty good shape. Mm. And we had to look at each other and just be like, pull we're, pin. We're done, bud. We're done. And that was the end of it. That was mm-hmm. the last time I did it. After And then twice before that, we got too much snow. Next year we had too much cloud and couldn't see anything. And then that year had her ass handed to us by the mountain. It's not So what you're saying easy. is <laughs> So what you're saying is I need a whole lot of hope, a whole lot of luck, good weather, goats down low and probably a prayer. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Especially for a week hunt. A uh, week's better than what I used to give it. I like <clears throat> you know, just go for the weekend and hope like hell the mm. go hope like hell the weather was good. But mm. anyway. So Goat hunting, mm-hmm. and then guiding a little bit maybe this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything else yep. exciting? Uh, well, I can't quite say yet. I actually, I'm working on a big project, but I'd have to make you like sign an NDA, and then I'd probably have to kill you. I can sign the NDA, but I'll, what I'll do is publish this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have a few projects that I've kind of been working on that. I actually, I had a premonition that I was going to do them this time last year, and then this year that got busy and crazy, and life was changing and fast. Um, they kind of, I started towards the end of November to get it all kind of manipulated and put together. So let's talk again. Yep. Hopefully, once this thing launches. Yeah, um, well, we can catch up this time next year. It's about the yeah. only time we ever see each The old trade show, wave and hug, and okay, yeah. see you next year. Oh, hey there. Yeah. Oh, hey there. How's your year in a nutshell? Go. Yeah. It's like uh, speed dating with your friends. Exactly. You, as you walk down the aisle, it's like you have full intentions of going back to the booth, but life gets busy, you end up getting stuck at your own booth, and then you actually never get to walk around the show. 
So everyone's like, oh, you go to SCI, you must see all the booths. It's like, actually, I see like one hallway, my booth, and like maybe two other booths if I'm lucky. Yeah, it's literally like that. Speed dating with friends. Speed like dating it. with friends. Yeah. yeah. So, but it, it is neat. I Being able to walk around this show and, you know, people that you've met at parties or people that you've met, you know, at venues or come to the booth or you've hunted with, you know, I don't think there's any other feeling quite like coming to a hunting show after you've spent it's, the time to get a, to know people. It's a relatively it, small community. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a big show. There's probably, what, 4,000 exhibitors, something along those lines. So it's a, it's, it feels big, but at the same time, you know, we all know each other, particularly yeah. on the professional side. Like, yes. it's it's a who's who of, you know, what have you been up to this year? And mm-hmm. it's, it's a great feeling. I think it almost a, makes Christmas feel anticlimactic. Yeah. <laughs> to me, to be honest, I'm like, oh, yeah, Christmas in the family. Love my family. And then I'm like, bring on Josie's head. <laughs> uh, hi, everybody. <laughs> Anyway, I think that's probably a good night to finish on. I know you've probably yeah. got to actually go and do some real work. Oh, I know. My boss is giving me the dirties. So, yeah. <laughs> But, Matt, it has been a pleasure to catch up with you guys. I wish you and the Ultimate OE nothing but success. I know it's kind of been a baby child that you guys have been growing over the last couple of years. And If anyone's interested in getting to the Ultimate OE, call Matt and Kern. Call one of the people that have come on with the exchanges and just get the download. It's, it's not always sugar cookies and kittens, nope. but I guarantee you it'll be the trip of a lifetime you get to do things you never thought you'd do before and you know if you find out that you end up loving it it might be the career path you end up taking yeah okay and in a very concise and short way for any young women girls listen to this advice hit me up instagram facebook i think that's it i don't really do i don't tweet i'm not a bird i'm not like a twitter tweeter (laughs) (laughs) but instagram or facebook rachel mayatilla uh, i'd love to answer any questions or appreciate taking time rach we'll put you Links to your bits and pieces in the show notes so people can get hold of you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, guys. But other than that, we better go and do some actual work, both of us. All right. Take care, you guys. Thank you. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at The Educated Hunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.